0: You're listening to a sermon podcast from Paramount Church in Columbus, Ohio. To learn more, visit ParamountColumbus.com. I asked Mike Kirk, what would happen if I just didn't go up there? He said he thought court would come up here. So, Thank you for your patience. Let me invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the sermon text for this morning, which continues in this wonderful letter. The epistle of joy, Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. The title of this message this morning is The Wondrous Work of Joy-Driven Prayer. And as you can probably see, I hope that maybe you've already read this text uh, and have been reading ahead. I would encourage anyone to do that, to be prepared each Sunday, that our hearts will be ready to hear God's word. We want to be as this sermon series title declares to us connoisseurs of happiness. We want to learn as believers, as a church, the great delights and joys that belong to us in Christ. And we want to make the most of them. And so one way that we can do that is by preparing in advance and reading ahead in this letter, perhaps even you, it's not a very long letter. We could even read it during the week, every week, just once a week, straight through, and we'd have enormous benefit. Well, if you have done a little bit of that, you'll see that this morning, the text keys in on an important part of the Christian life. And in fact, it's a part of my Christian life that often feels as weak as any. And that is the area of prayer. And uh, if you're like me, and I think that you probably are, this is a place in your Christian life where you, you struggle Often, I feel like my prayer life is a little bit dull or a little stale, in that my prayers tend to revert back to a list of requests, needs, complaints. Uh, usually, those prayers are kind of quick I, I may not always be thinking through them and, and choosing my words carefully or wisely or or praying big, bright prayers, and so I'm excited to come to this text because it's these kinds of verses in the Bible that, that have really helped me, even though I keep feeling this weakness. I think these are the places where there is some real gold for us because we need, we really need help for prayer. And so it is our prayer this morning that God will use uh, this text to encourage us and strengthen us. What this text is going to allow us to do is kind of have a unique glimpse into the prayer life of the Apostle Paul. And we already know from the texts that have already come in the book of Philippians that Paul prays with joy. He prays with genuine, overwhelming, big, bright happiness. And he does it because of the gospel. But this morning, what we can see in this text is the added help of knowing Not just how he prays, not just the kind of happiness that is evidently in his heart when he prays, but what exactly does he pray for? This will allow us to really see into the heart of Paul in this text because he really shows us what is nearest and dearest to his heart. So this morning, as we look at this, let's think about our own prayer lives. Let's think about how your prayer life and mine intersects or pretty often in my life doesn't quite intersect with the love of Christ and the joys that have been given to us in the gospel. And so this morning as we do that, we need to see this connection to love. The love that the gospel had borne in the heart of the Apostle Paul for the people that he served, his friends, his brothers and sisters in the faith, these believers in Philippi, because to really understand his prayers is to understand his love. One of those things that we want to take away from this text and the example that Paul gives us is that our prayers can always be more infused with the joy and love of Christ than they are currently. We have all these things going on, pressures and troubles and distractions and anxieties and fears, and sometimes panic slips into our prayer life, and and we call out to God in those moments, but we want to infuse our prayers with more love and more joy, and that would be a wonderful thing for us this morning. So what you'll notice is the three truths that we're going to see from this text are really about love. And that by understanding that love, we hope God will increase the value, the brightness, the bigness of our prayers. So notice first this truth, that joy-driven love abounds in real knowledge. This is what Paul says he's praying for. This is one of the things that he's praying about. The first endeavor of Paul's prayer in this text is for a continuation of what the Philippian believers had already been experiencing. And that was the knowledge of God by faith in Christ because of his grace in their lives through the good news. They had this experience of knowing God truly because of Jesus. They'd come to know God in a way that that no one can come to know God without faith in Jesus. That's a real key truth for the Christian life, isn't it? There is no way to know God without faith in his son. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the father but by him. Therefore, we want to see this continuation of their experience of knowing God abounding in Paul's prayer. He prays about in verse 9, just focus there for now. He prays about something that he calls real knowledge. Notice in verse 9. He says, and he's coming out of this this overwhelming happiness about them because of the gospel. He's praying for them with real thanks. He's considering himself to be an ultimate servant of theirs, united together in Christ. And this, I pray that your love may overflow still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. The Greek word that he uses here that, that my Bible has translated real knowledge is the word epi It's sort of two parts mashed together. Epi meaning real or final or ultimate, and gnosis, which is the word knowledge. You might remember from other sermon series or maybe things that you have read and commentaries or other Bible studies you've had that Paul often dealt with an early form of something called Gnosticism. And this was a group of people that really felt that their purpose and their hope was wrapped up in knowing certain things. So if they could get and amass enough knowledge and maybe even to become like like the human internet and have all of this, it would satisfy their longings, which ultimately are longings for God. But what happened for those people is that their knowledge fell short because it lacked the the true, real knowledge that only comes by faith in Christ. They had to repent of their sin and place their trust in Christ if they really, really wanted to know God. And that's why I think Paul uses this this word. He doesn't just say that their love would overflow in knowledge, in gnosis, but in real knowledge. A real, working, deep, final knowledge soul-satisfying, heart-gladdening knowledge of God. This word epi means final. It can also mean toward. So we're catching even from there, something that's been a theme so far in the book of Philippians is that pursuit. It's a, a, a towardness toward real knowledge toward really knowing Christ, really in pursuit of him, the pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of God, the pursuit of happiness in Christ. So Paul points out a true and deeper knowledge of God that goes way beyond mere facts. I would imagine that there are people, probably many people in the world who know many more facts about the Bible, and in that way, more facts about God. But they do not know him as well as even the youngest believer in this room. Because those facts are not what really communicate to us, God. Think about your relationships. That's not what it means to have a real relationship with someone. I know facts about you. I know when your birthday is. I know your favorite color. I I know what car you drive. Those things are all facts, but that's not really what it means to know someone. Well, here Paul is pointing out this ultimate real knowledge, a life-changing kind of knowledge that brings with it a discernment a literally, a growing capacity to understand. You see, this theme that is actually in the title of our sermon series, connoisseur, keeps coming up for us in this letter. Because that word, remember, I said before, it's a French word that means to know. It means to know how something works. Well, here's Paul using another word that's very similar. He wants their love, the love that they have in Christ, to overflow in this real ultimate knowledge so that they will have a working discernment of how the Christian life works, of how relationship with God works. How are we to interact? What is the dynamic of our relationship? What does it really mean to belong to Him and to know Him? The good news for us today is that because God has given us the good news of Jesus and that good news has opened the way for us to know God and because he is so happy, he is delighting for you and I to know him, that our capacity to know him grows and grows and grows. That's what we often think of in our church when we use the word sanctification. We usually think of that growing capacity to know and enjoy and understand God. This is an amazing, amazing gift that God has given to us. We gotta be careful that we don't underestimate it because it really is important and at the center of the Christian life. We have a growing capacity because of God's infinite grace to know more of him, to enjoy more of him, to love more of him, to rest more in him. And we could go on and on. And that's what the capacity is intended to do, to allow us to grow and go on and on and on. You know, when I was a kid, I watched a lot of TV. One of my favorite TV shows was Doogie Howser, M.D., yeah, this show ran from 1989 to 1993. It's weird. When I, when I realized that, uh, looking up some of those facts about Doogie Hauser, I thought, man, I feel like that show went on for decades in my life. It was just a few years. That's the impact that it made. I think the reason that this show impacted me so much is that I found myself, which is the whole point, wanting to be like Doogie Hauser. I had a yearning to be the hero. We all kind of have that. But even beyond that, I wanted to be like Doogie Hauser because he had this incredible capacity for knowledge, for helpfulness, usefulness. He's kind of like in the show, this child prodigy who is gifted with incredible intellect. He has a photographic memory. At the age of nine, he gets a perfect score on the SAT. He graduates from Princeton at 10. And as I watched all of that unfold in the show, I found myself loving Doogie Howser. But I also found myself hating Doogie Howser. Because when I watched him and and he put on display his intellect and power in the show, I wanted to be like him, but I knew I could never be like him. I would never have the capacity to think like that, to deduce like that, to make sense of the world like that. There's nothing that I could do, and I knew this, even at that young age, that I cannot grow my capacity to become like Doogie Hauser M.D. But friends, listen to this. God has not called us to be Doogie Hauser M.D. He has called us to be servants of joy in the kingdom of God, and he has decided by his own sovereignty and power that we have the capacity to grow in our knowledge of him, that we can continue expanding and deepening our faith and our our understanding of who he is and our appreciation of his love. And that's why Paul highlights so many times in his writings the ongoing sanctification of the Christian life. It's right here before our eyes. They're words that are really simple. There's just a few. My eyes go right over them a lot when I'm reading through the Bible. But there they are. He says, in this I pray that your love may overflow still more and more. That's a great kind of <laughs> motto for the Christian life. That's what the Christian life is centrally about. Still more and more and more and more. And the more is more of God. One of the reasons I think that Paul was happy and joyful about the Philippians was because he could see in them the evidence of true belief directing their lives, even in the midst, I said last week, even in the midst of all of the, the troubles that are in every church, the weaknesses in every Christian life. And Paul was adept at recognizing them. That was a significant part of his purpose and calling was to see them and be as pastor shepherds to correct issues. But even when those things were abounding, Paul could see through the fog and he could see the way that their knowledge of God was was continuing to direct their lives. And this is an important point because I think that when we think of sanctification, we often think of feelings or deeds that grow. If you, if you think about what does it mean to be a mature Christian, we probably think first, it means that you have superior feelings about God. And that's, that's true. Obviously, that's true. We have a growing relationship with God. We have increased feelings. We love him more and more. That's true. Or we may think, if we're a little on the legalistic end, we may think a mature Christian is someone who always obeys the rules and whose life is really pictured by the obedience of those rules and, and conformity to God's law. And of course, that's true also. Our, our lives are changing. He's changing our behavior. But something that may go over, overlooked a lot is this. It is a sign of sanctification and of spiritual growth when your knowledge and your discernment about life and the truth is ever growing. We could put the word on it, wisdom. One of the key signs of spiritual maturity is wisdom. And that often surpasses big feelings that we might have, which are good and enjoyable it often surpasses kind of big changes in behavior because it gives us a, a mind that is like Christ. And it's not a mind. Again, it's not a mind like a Doogie Hauser mind. It's not a factual mind. It's not simply a scientific mind. It's a spiritual mind. It's a theological mind. It's also interesting to see that when Paul talks about this, he's using language or themes of love. The operating principle in the Christian life for Paul is then love. It's connected to that knowledge. The true knowledge that he wants them to have is knowledge that will cause their love to abound. And as their love abounds, their knowledge and discernment and understanding of God will grow. For instance, here's another one. If I asked you this, when love overflows, what does it look like? You might say, It looks like mushy feelings. That's what, like, newlyweds or people who are just beginning to date, get to know each other, kind of infatuated with each other. They become twitterpated, like in the movie Bambi. All the little creatures that fall in love with each other are twitterpated. They're just kind of drunk with love. That's what it looks like when love overflows. It's this feeling. It's this overwhelming sense of love. But Paul says something else, not something instead of, that's part of it, but he says something else. He shows that when love overflows, it brings about a clearer discernment about the truth, an ability to walk in life by the truth. And we know this because this is not the only time that Paul says it. This isn't a one and done, one-off Side statement He's making in a letter. He says this all the time. Here's one of the other places. In Colossians 1 9 and 10, he says, For this reason, we also, since the day we heard about it, have not ceased praying for you. And here's that request again and asking that you may be filled, filled with all the mushy feelings of being in love with your newlywed spouse. That's actually not what he says. That would be weird. He said that you may be filled with the knowledge, the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that then you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. This first truth is that joy-driven love that's evidenced by Paul's joy-driven prayer abounds. It has its, 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 its eye on, it's in pursuit of a growing, delightful, lovely, life-changing knowledge of God. Therefore, for us to put this text into practice in our lives, we ought to do that very thing, pursue real knowledge of God through his word This may mean a shift for the way that some of us, myself included, sometimes approach the Bible. If you come to the Bible and you tend to come to it wanting to know facts, or kind of like sometimes I do, win the argument or or get yourself out of some kind of theological trouble because somebody's challenging you, or because you just want to have a particular kind of feeling or to have your anxiety resolved. And, and and in one sense, all of those are reasons that we go to the Bible. But we might need to shift our view, our approach so that our pursuit is more about knowing God. It's more about yearning to see him more clearly, to understand him more, to know his heart and his ways, to understand how the gospel intersects with everything in our lives. That's what it would mean to be gospel-centered. That's what it would mean to be faithful theologians, even street theologians, and how the truth of God plays out in daily life. Here's the second truth, and it is another love-focused, joy-driven truth. The joy-driven love prepares us for the day of Christ. Paul goes on talking about his prayer, and he shows to us what the purpose of this knowledge is, and that is a discovery to discover and try out excellent things, because the trying out or discovering of excellent things will prepare us for the return of Jesus when he comes back for us, or even when we die before then and go to be with him. There's a preparation that's happening. But notice again what the preparation is about it is this overflowing love that sets us on a quest of discovery. Verse 10. He says that he wants the real knowledge to abound still more and more in all discernment so that there's another one of those, therefore, what's the therefore, therefore, what's he doing? What's his purpose? So that he says, you may discover the things that are excellent. There's that capacity language again. The word discover means you're going out somewhere to find something you don't currently have or see. So he wants them to discover, and these are already believers. He's not talking to unbelievers saying, I want you to uh, come to Christ. And then when you come to Christ, you'll discover all those things, download all the excellent things. You'll know what they are. You're done. You're set, right? That's not the way that it works. He's in fact talking to Christians and he's praying that they would discover still more and more and more the things that are excellent. Do you like to discover new things? Some of us probably more so than others by personality, but for the most part, I think we all like to discover new things, especially when those new things are delights. This is the ultimate bright offer from Paul because what he is saying is, I am praying, I want, with joy and love for you, I am praying big, bright prayers for you, Philippians, believers, because I want you to discover what is excellent more and more. I want you to find the new delights That are in Christ. The superior things. That's what the word excellent means. Superior things. The worth more than anything else things. I want you to discover them. He is praying that we would seek out the delights of knowing God. That our hearts and minds would be flooded with things that make us glad about God, the things would make us happy in Christ, and that those things would would overshadow in a way, not minimize or remove, but overshadow even the sorrows of life, even the griefs and conflicts of life, the disappointments, the discouragements, what the Puritans called the losses and the crosses. By the way, the Puritans being... uh, some of the the happiest Christians in all of church history because they wanted this to overshadow. They saw the excellent things would overshadow those things. Paul is a kind of adventure seeker, a spiritual adventure seeker. We have all kinds of examples in this world of what it means to be human to be an adventure seeker. There are people that go skydiving from planes. I don't think I would ever do that. They go plunging into ice water as Ezra and I were, were watching some videos yesterday about some people who live in the coldest city uh, in the world, Yakutsk. It's like negative 70. And every day some of these folks go out and dive into the water, you know, bust a hole in the ice. Because of the rush, because of the thrill of it, or, or climbing a mountain to see the horizon undimmed by the smog. These are all ways that people are adventure seekers But the Apostle Paul is also an adventure seeker. And what he's doing is he's praying that you would be a spiritual adventure seeker. He's praying that you would pursue to discover the excellencies that have been given to you in Christ. The things that you don't quite yet know about. The parts of the Christian life that we... We just haven't gotten a taste for yet. He wants us to essentially be going deeper in our Christian lives. Sometimes the word that gets put on that adventure seeking is hedonism. That's where people in the world are are seeking after pleasure. We also know that there is a kind of Christian pursuit of delights. And that's what Paul is talking about here. Seeking pleasure for heaven's sake. Because these pleasures, notice in verse 10, do a work in us. They're not just fleeting. They're not just like things you, you enjoy and that's a cool memory. And I, I remember when we had the spiritual experience, that was really great. Now we move on to something else, but we're pretty much the same people we were, but rather the finding out of the excellencies of Christ are things that change us. Notice he says, so that. He keeps like, it's kind of like a chain reaction in his, in his words. They keep leading to something else. So that you may be sincere, so that you may be true uh, and blameless for the day of Christ. That when these excellent superior things in the Christian life become instrumental in your life, they are instrumental in your preparation for the return of Christ. They prepare you for the day when Christ comes, which could be today. It could be tomorrow. And that he would find us with a genuine faith and with a clear conscience, sincere and blameless for the day that he comes. It's again that picture that's in scripture. It's the picture of a bride being adorned for her groom that when he comes, she's ready. She is arrayed and she is, she is delighting in this moment of return and, 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 and unity. John Piper says this, desire that your life count for something great. Long for your life to have eternal significance. Want this. Don't coast through life without a passion. What we're seeing in these in these verses is the passion of the apostle Paul overflowing out of his heart. We are seeing the kind of Christian that he was, the kind of Christian that he is. And he is not the kind of Christian that was satisfied coasting through life, but rather was on a pursuit, a holy pursuit to know God. This is so difficult. It is made so difficult because, well, obviously, because we are sinners. Our hearts have remaining sin. We are not the way that we should be quite yet. Our hearts don't get it. We complain about these things. We, we, we have this part of us that's darkened still, and we don't really know if we want these things. We don't know if we should want these things. It gets very confusing. But it also gets confusing because the world around us tells us what we should see as excellent. And because we are still so absorbed in the world, we're immersed in the world, that it's easy for us to just buy that. These are the things that are excellent. Have the dream car. Go on the dream vacation. Have these thrill-seeking adventures. Have the dream job. You need to have the dream kids. Have the dream church. These are the excellent things. But they are not the superior things when compared with Paul's quest to discover the real superior things. That's why he says epinosis. That's why he says the things that are excellent. That's why he's putting us on a quest to get them, to discover them. And he wants us to be sincere and blameless and wise so that we can know the difference. This is, this, this is just, man, it's the hard part. It's hard to know the difference. Every, and there's, there's nobody in here that doesn't have a hard time knowing the difference. It is all over us every day. But this is what Paul is praying for. That's why he's praying for the real knowledge. It's not so we can be smart. It's so that we can be discerning. And it's so that we can be discerning, not so we can win arguments, but so that we can discover the excellent things that are at the heart of Christian happiness and joy that our hearts would overflow. The world is like one big hawker on the street. You know what a hawker is. It's a person on the street corner who comes up and, and, and pulls open the trench coat and has all of these knockoff Rolexes and wants you to buy one, but is telling you they're real. This is the real deal. That's why I've got it hidden in my code. I don't want everybody to know about this. This is just for today. It's a special thing I've got going. This is the real deal. Now, don't tell everybody because they're going fast, and, and, and I don't want you to miss out. Which of these Rolexes looks nice to you? This is a scam that's going on right now. I mean, it's like actually happening. We're not making that up. It's happening right now around the world. It's even happening right now with Rolexes. Rolex is a Swiss, the Swiss timepiece It has become over over decades a kind of status symbol. And that's why hawkers are always trying to duplicate it with knockoffs. But there are people who may come across the hawker on the street and they would not be fooled. Not because they're not interested or they don't have money. They won't be fooled because they're connoisseurs. They're connoisseurs of the Rolex. Rolex. They know how it works. They know what it looks like. They know how to spot a fake. The main way, if you want to know, is that the second hand on a true Rolex doesn't tick, 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 tick. It glides. It's because of the way that the Rolex is made superior to all of the others. But if you don't know that, it would look like a Rolex in every way. It would shine. It would be beautiful. It would keep great time. But tick, 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 tick. And if you overlook that, well... You bought a counterfeit. You have been hawked. You have been duped. This is Paul's concern. Don't be duped. Don't be fooled. Because the world is hawking every day. Every day, something new, some other promise, something else that will give us hope. So here's the question. Can you approve the excellent things do you know how to, to approve the excellent things, to recognize them, to see them, to discover them, to try them out? Do you? Do you know the difference? Sometimes you do. Sometimes you don't. But our growing capacity for spiritual discernment, as Paul is praying for here, holds value in this. This is what it means to be a connoisseur of the happiness of Christ to know how it works and spot the counterfeit. But it also has this promise for the world to come that we would be sincere and blameless on the day of Christ. Therefore, a second application this morning is not only to pursue real knowledge of God through his word, but to then pursue these excellencies of Christ so that we would delight in them and they would develop us in our souls. This means that it's, we need an intentional pursuit of them. You have to intentionally wake up, put on your, your, your discovery shoes and go out into your day committed to this pursuit with the apostle Paul praying like he does, God, please make my love for you overflow still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment, God, I need this. I want to discover the things that are excellent. I want to be sincere and blameless for the day of Christ. This is the pursuit. The final truth that we see this morning is the joy-driven love also bears the fruit of righteousness. This is the part that's really familiar to us because this is the part, and for good reason, we have so harped on in churches for decades and centuries. We have harped and harped and harped on be fruitful, be good, um, keep the law, obey, um, make sure that you, you give right, make sure you talk right, dress right, be around the right people, drink the right things, eat the right things, go the right places. It goes on and on. The fruits of righteousness, which are glorious. They are wonderful. They are great. But what's happened is we bypassed the how-to and we went straight to the fruit or we dumbed down the how-to into just the little things that you do. Do this routine Uh, live life this way, impose these rules on your life, stick to this and that, put up guardrails. All of those are important and good, but we miss the heart because Paul has clearly told us what the heart is. How do you bear the fruit of righteousness? How do you actually be a fruitful Christian? How does it happen? By trying to discover the excellent delights of what it means to belong to Christ. Christ. You bear the fruit of righteousness, this is new for me, by trying with all your might to be as happy as you can in Christ, for Christ, because of Christ, and through Christ. That's how you do it. If you want to be really fruitful, that's how you do it. And that all happens by grace. Notice what he says in verse 11. This other dimension of Paul's joyful theology looks to the the joy of present fruit. It's joy upon joy upon joy. He says, having been then, he's continuing his prayer, filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. It all is working together, this whole quest that he's on. He's not short-sighted. He's not farsighted. He is present-sighted. He is bringing all of them together and thinking about the present moment of bearing joyful fruit. This is the theme. One of the themes in Philippians is filling an abundance. Remember just from a passage just before this, he talks about his prayers. He says, all my remembrance of you, I'm always offering prayer in my every prayer for you all that He will complete it by the day of Christ Jesus, this work in you. And then he goes on. Here's more present language. That love may overflow still more and more in the things that are excellent. Having been filled, it's this focus of present filling, of this ongoing present abundance. It's again back to a kind of spiritual version of reaping and sowing. He highlights that the filling of the fruit of righteousness is the result of ongoing capacity for this real knowledge that God is giving to us, this discernment in life. Again, not only the mental ascent to some truth in the Bible, but that life change is coming and it's blessing others because our joy is rising and fueling or feeding that fruit. It's a beautiful thing. It's an important thing. Because this fruit is, in fact, righteousness is what is setting apart believers from unbelievers. Paul says this as well in Galatians 5. He contrasts two ways of walking, one by the spirit, one by the flesh. He says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, indecent behavior, idolatry, witchcraft, hostilities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, but the fruit of the Spirit. And notice how this works out. It really comes, it becomes a lot clearer to me when I keep all of this kind of in context with Paul's teaching, and we look at what he's talking about with this joy-driven love and prayer, why he says these are the fruits of the Spirit. Why these? Love, joy, happiness is a fruit of the Spirit. Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. This is the difference. How are you going to get there? How do you get these things to be a part of your life? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How do you get those? I for so long thought I got them by being diligent. It's just simple, like simple, diligent obedience. Read your Bible, say your prayers, give to the church, go to the church, try to obey your parents. But in fact, instead, there's something else. It is the heart of knowing God of delighting in him, of pursuing the excellencies of him. Some people object to this. They have since Paul wrote it down, uh, probably even since before then, even in, when it is revealed in other places in Scripture, the way that God sees our, the importance of, of us to bear fruit. Some people object to this walking by the Spirit because it seems restrictive. You see, there's, that, there's the excellencies of the world kind of theme coming in. It seems prudish. It seems like that's really going to suck the joy out of life. Really? I mean, that's the way I'm supposed to live my life. Yeah, I'm, I'm obedient, but there's no joy in that, right? But that's not true, is it? These fruits are the fruit of a happy walk with Christ. They are the, the big, bright, beautiful, beneficial fruits, and they are to be pursued in this way. But how? Not by law which might say, be loving, number one, be joyful, number two, be peaceful, number three, but rather by the growing knowledge of the gospel, of the grace of God, that our capacity would grow and our fruit would increase all because we are finding our ultimate gladness in him. That's why we're on this pursuit. That's what we're after And this is one of the reasons we're after it. So our final application this morning is this. If you're writing them down, write this one down. Live by this question. What can I happily do today to give God glory and praise in my life? What can I do happily today? What can I give my heart to in pursuit of the excellencies of knowing him? Of all of these excellent things that are superior, they're worth uh, more than anything else. They are worthy of becoming my treasures in following him and knowing him that I would glorify him. Because that brings together all of Paul's prayer. That's what he's praying for. He wants their happiness in Christ to abound so that the fruit of their lives and righteousness will grow so that their happiness in Christ will abound and then the fruit of their righteousness will grow and then their happiness in Christ will abound. That's what he's constantly praying for. That's good for them. That's good for God. And that is good for the world. This begins by simply coming to faith in Christ to begin with. We all come fruitless and in, for all intents and purposes, unhappy. But Christ offers for us to come to him by grace because of what he's done for us. So it could be that you're here today and you need to come to Christ. I hope today is your day, the day of conversion for you that you would repent of your sin and finally put your faith in Jesus with his help. And then as a result of that, that you would join a, a body of believers like this and that we would be with God's help. God, help us. Help us to be on this path of pursuit, to delight, to delight in what it means to be a Christian, that our hearts will be filled with joy and our lives will be full of fruit. And I hope that you and I can adopt this prayer, this way of praying. Would you do that? Would you start praying like this? And if you have to begin this way, just pray these words. Make these your, your words. Then branch out from there because we want God to do this in our church and in our lives. There's nothing more important. There would be nothing better for us and for the world around us to see many people come to Christ and delight in him with us. Please stand because we're going to sing again to the God that, that gives us joy. And hopefully our hearts are prepared because of what we've heard. And we we have been thinking about this prayer. And so now let's pray together uh, before we do sing. Our Father, we do not, we we don't, it's evident today, we don't know how to pray. We so seldom, I so seldom, don't pray prayers like this. My prayers are not full of, full of happiness all the time and joy and thanksgiving. My prayers are often not big and bright and beautiful and beneficial, overflowing with, with joy-driven love. I pray that you would change our prayers, God. Give us a vision. Give us a renewed sense of, of the superiority of your excellencies. God, please give us eyes to see uh, make us connoisseurs so we can spot the counterfeit and, and further pursue what really matters the things that are that are superior and more valuable than anything else god only that is going to satisfy our souls and we do want we, that's obvious we want we want to be happy make us happy in you make us fruitful in you make us useful to you all to your glory and to our enjoyment of you. And I pray this today, together we pray this today for our church, for our community, for our world, and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.